Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to them, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. We are back in our series on the kingdom entitled Your Kingdom Come. This is our third installment in that series. We started off by looking at Jesus ascending to the throne uh, after his resurrection. We looked at his ascension, something we just talked about when we read the creed. And uh, now we're moving through Matthew chapter 13, which is referred to as the parable discourse. And this is Matthew's collection of Jesus's parables that he taught in, especially when he was speaking to the crowds. It's important for us to focus in on what the kingdom of heaven is, because this was the primary focus of Jesus's teaching. He says that he came to preach the good news of the kingdom, and that 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 was really his focus. What's interesting about that, or kind of strange, is that many of us can share the gospel, and we can talk about Jesus and share what we're calling the good news, and yet never once mention his kingdom. It seems like we operate a lot of times in sort of two different stories, where we have the story of the Jesus who saved us, and then there's this other kingdom narrative, which Jesus talked a lot about while he was with us, but really it doesn't have much bearing on what we learn as far as Jesus saving us. Throughout this series, I hope that we can see that those stories are really one, and that they're encompassed by Jesus's teaching on the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower, or the parable of the four soils, and in that, we saw that uh, God's word reveals conditions of our hearts, and that there are two possible outcomes for those. There's either the seed that falls on the good soil, which bears fruit, or there's the seed that falls on the other three types of soil, which eventually dies. And we saw that there's a lot of ways to die. There's three that are listed in that, but there's one type of good soil. And that parable also explains why Jesus taught in parables, which was so that he could target particularly and specifically those to whom it had been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, the reason that he teaches in parables, is so that those who are meant to hear and understand it absolutely will, and those that aren't, won't. It's not the typical way that we think of understanding parables, but what 
his teaching with parables and what that first parable explains is that there are, there is this reality of there are those who will be saved and there are those who will not. Happy Sunday. (laughs) Welcome to church. I don't know what you thought we were going to do. There are those who will be saved and there are those who will not. That's what was established in that first parable. The parable that we're looking at today raises the question then, or answers the question, what do we do with that fact? How do we live knowing that there, is this, there are these real categories? There are really the sons of the kingdom and there are the sons of the evil one, but then how should we then live knowing that those categories exist? This next parable, immediately following the one on the sower, answers that question. So, we're going to move through our parable and see, first of all, that, that it uses a lot of the same imagery. It's another agricultural parable. They just about all are. But uh, Jesus' parables are not like the Marvel universe. They don't create their own universe. I thought I should talk about Marvel at some point today. Um, there's, uh, instead, they are really their own self-contained stories. So that soil doesn't always mean hearts, seed doesn't always mean the word of God as it did in the last parable. What we're looking at is not to transplant the symbolism from one parable into another, but rather we're looking at what is the narrative arc of each parable and what is that arc teaching us. So that's the way we need to approach this parable. So first of all, before we get into that, uh, uh, what we're going to look at is the parable itself in order to get a clear understanding of it so we know the material that we're working with. And then we're going to see how this parable describes for us what our present expectation for the kingdom should be. And then it shows us what our future hope for the kingdom should be. It establishes a present expectation and a future hope. So first, let's get into understanding the parable itself. So brief recap, you just heard it read once, so I'll give a recap. This parable is lesser known than the parable of the soils, but it's similar in that a sower goes out to sow his seed. And uh, he sows good seed on a good field, and his... uh, Seed starts to come up, but an enemy of his at night when everyone was sleeping sneaks into his field and sows a bad seed. He basically just fills his seed with weeds. And the uh, landowner's servants then come to him in the, uh, later on as the seeds start to sprout, and they say, didn't you sow good seed in this field? Why, is all, why are all these weeds coming up? And the landowner knows, he says, an enemy has done this. Uh, An enemy has come in and mixed these bad seeds, these weeds, amongst our wheat. And so the servants immediately ask, okay, then, should we go and harvest, gather up the weeds from the midst of the wheat? And uh, that's where we see what I think is the most important section of this parable, the real turning point, the the purpose of the parable, and that's the master's response. 
So in Matthew 13, 29 to 30, the master says to that question, should we now go and just gather the weeds out? He says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the picture, that's the parable. And thankfully, the disciples respond to this parable in the same way that they responded to the parable of the sowers, which is, all right, can you explain this to us a bit further? It seems like there's a lot of symbols in there. We're not sure if we should just take the soil, the parable of the soils symbols and read them into this one. And so Jesus provides later on in the text uh, a clear explanation of this parable in which he basically describes what exactly each symbol relates to in the world. So Matthew 13, 36 to 39, Jesus' explanation says, then he left the crowds, went into the house. So they're away from the crowds now and they're just together in likely Peter's home. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And so with this parable, it's Jesus almost provides, this is probably controversial, like an allegorical interpretation of this parable. He puts uh, each thing has a symbol that it represents. And if we reimagine the parable with the symbols that it has, what this means is that the kingdom of heaven, the, the sons of the kingdom, are always going to be growing amongst the sons of the evil one. They're Right now, they are together. And the angels that are called uh, in to reap at the end of the age, the harvest time, this end of the age, they will be the ones that finally do the parsing, that finally harvest and say, this is wheat and this is a weed. And so the weeds will be given to their purpose, which is to be burned, and the wheat will be given to its purpose, brought into the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we see in this parable. This picture of a present togetherness growing together and a final judgment. That's what we see in the parable of the wheat in the weeds. This may be lesser known and it may be a less familiar idea than the parable of the sower. However, I think that the instruction from this parable is some of the most practical instruction that we could receive as a church. And I think that if this, if this is something that we get, it can activate us to move into the community in an incredible way, as well as provide us with an endurance and a fitness and a patience to see the kingdom grow. So that's what I want us to see this morning. So let's look at this parable in terms of how it describes our present expectation of the kingdom. What should we presently expect? If the kingdom is in our midst, 
how should we expect it to look? So if we look at Matthew 13, 27 to 28, there's this piece that I want us to really grasp. It says, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? I think right here, in the question that the servants ask of the master, it puts its finger precisely on what we often think it's our role to do. You see, we hear something like, like we heard in the parable of the soils, which is there is this delineation. There are the sons of the kingdom and there are the sons of the evil one. And so our immediate thought is, okay, let's get to it. Let's go ahead and start doing that parsing. Let's go ahead and make that separation. Let's take it into our hands. We found out the field is covered in weeds. Let's just get in there and pull out those weeds. Now, we can understand how harmful that has been. This idea that we can be the ones that go in there and start parsing between who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. We've seen throughout church history the harm that something like that has caused. There's uh, from something like the Spanish Inquisition in its most, you know, probably infamous form, which is they, they've created this delineation and we are going to be the ones that parse by death who is in the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom. Or there's even subtler ways throughout church history in which this has happened, in which we've tried to make the separation now between the wheat and the weeds. Uh, consider uh, before that it, the monastic movement across Europe of the church, which is that we're going to take the purest people among us and we're going to cloister them away in monasteries where they'll be separated from the world and they'll be able to just focus on the spiritual and the religious things and we'll ensure that we have a pure collection of wheat here because they'll be separated and they won't be around the weeds anymore. We can pull the weeds by just getting the wheat away from them. And so Europe is littered in these beautiful monasteries, but really it's this dead religion that's taking place. And it happens in, in more contemporary ways as well. Uh, I've heard the statistic, and I was trying to track it down. I think it's in the book Unchristian, which is probably a little dated now. But within five years of converting to becoming a Christian, the average Christian has no non-Christian friends. We seclude ourselves. I know this was the case for me. In uh, college, I became really involved in a campus ministry, and I was reflecting back on my time and realized that all, the only friends that I had were in this. And all of those friends that I started school with were gone. Those relationships had vanished. And that's because I had internalized this idea that it was my job now to do this parsing. And the problem, the thing that's in the way of my growth is being around an impurity, being around the people that aren't the sons of the kingdom, but are the sons of the evil one. 
And so when we take that upon ourselves, it creates this incredible harm. I don't think this tendency is unique to Christianity. I think it's unique to nearly every movement where we take it upon ourselves to make the delineation based on some metric of in, insiders and outsiders. And then we see that the problem is we, we just need to remove all of the outsiders. And then once they're gone, then we'll finally be able to move forward. Once we've removed these people that are the problem, then success will be available to us. It's that quest for a type of purity. The tendency throughout human history, I think, has been incredibly harmful. And so that's why the master's response to this very human desire to do the sorting now it sets Christianity in, in a unique place amongst all other movements. Because this response is, is incredibly unique. The, here's what the master responds to the servant's desire to do the sorting now. Matthew 13, 29. But he said, no, don't gather. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Don't go and gather the weeds now. So, what is the reason? The reason is, we can't tell the difference. The servants, in going to gather the wheat and the weeds, they will almost certainly end up gathering up the wheat. In this attempt to create a sort of purity in the field, they're going to end up destroying the field. The whole purpose of the field, to grow the wheat, is at stake. So this fits perfectly with the sort of agricultural conceit of the parable. The likely plant, the weed that was sown, is a plant called darnel. I think I'm saying that right. And it is... Uh, it looks exactly like wheat. Uh, it's referred to as just false wheat. And so when they're growing right next to wheat, they're, they're literally indistinguishable until the ear appears. And then you can tell this was a false wheat because it doesn't have the ear, the purpose, the fruit of the wheat that was supposed to be born. And so the fact is that if the servants were to go into the field, staying within sort of the conceit of the parable, if they were to go into the field, they would inevitably be making mistakes all the time, pulling up good wheat, thinking that they were cleansing the field from these weeds. And so the master knows that. And he says, don't go in and don't try and gather the weeds because you're going to be making this mistake all the time. You can't tell the difference now. Yes, there is a difference. There is a reality. There are the sons of the kingdom. There are the sons of the evil one. There, are wheat. there is wheat in this field, and there, there are weeds in this field. Conjugation is hard. And there, so now you know that fact. Now you need to know this other fact, which is right now you can't tell the difference between them. 
So in going to gather the weeds, you're going to be tearing up this wheat. You're going to be doing more harm. So this has real implications for what we can know about the kingdom and what our present expectation for the kingdom should be. I think from this we can learn three things. The first thing is that presently, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one can look shockingly similar. That if we were to go and try and do the parsing now, in many cases, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And that makes sense because if we were to try, what, what exactly bar would we use? Would it be like, well, you just need to confess Jesus as Lord? Well, that seems like too low, low of a bar, right? Seems like that could be too easily manipulated and it wouldn't actually account for the heart change that we see described in Scripture. And then, what if it's like, you know how to become a canonized saint, you need to have two verified miracles? Which is the same, to become a double O, you need two kills. It's the same, same principle. So what if that's the bar? You, you need to have like a verified miracle so that we know that the Spirit is working through you. Uh, they listen to the podcast, so I'm thinking about saying this, but, uh, but I have in-laws who, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And so I, I, I receive gifts from them, like, uh, like study Bibles, that like, they just want us to speak in tongues so bad because in the world that they're occupying, that's how you know. They've established the metric. But if you think in terms of, of miracles, though, even to go back to that, it, it may seem like that's outrageous. That's just too high of a bar. And yet, we hear Jesus saying things like, you, you'll come to me, and you'll say, we cast out demons in your name, we perform miracles in your name, and yet Jesus will say, I never knew you. So to us, this seems like this insane bar where if we're casting out demons in Jesus' name, we're performing miracles, then we know we're in. Then we know we're wheat. And yet Jesus is saying, no, that's not the bar at all. That would be far too low of a bar. So these delineations that we think we could make right now, we need to know that we can't tell the difference. There is a difference, and if we were to try and make the separation now, we would only cause harm. That's thing one. So the second thing to see is that the danger of our going to gather the weeds, the danger is caused to the wheat. He says, don't go gather the weeds now, because in trying to gather them now, what you'll, prob what you'll harm is the wheat. You'll probably end up pooling wheat when it shouldn't have been pooled. So the danger isn't, oh, you'll go and you'll probably miss some weeds, and so it won't really matter anyway. The master's only thinking in terms of the wheat. This is all arcing towards the sons of the kingdom. And so, he says, uh, uh, the, the, danger, the danger of sorting this wheat 
is that you will likely, or excuse me, the danger of trying to gather up the weeds is that you will root up the wheat along with them. So what does that mean? What is the harm caused to the wheat in our attempted sorting of it? What is the danger to the sons of the kingdom from our trying to sort out who's in the kingdom and who's out of it now? Well, as we discussed earlier, this has to become at some point a matter of a metric that we use to discern who is in and who is out. And we talked about how there is no real viable metric that we could possibly use for that. And so the issue is there have been so many times where we have tried to establish those metrics. I think the speaking in tongues example is kind of a perfect one. Now we have a metric. Now we can know who's in and who's out of the kingdom. Now we can discern the very thing that Jesus said we're unable to discern. But that's probably an extreme one because we do it in all sorts of ways. We do it with musical styles. We do it with uh, drinking and not drinking. We do it with what type of clothes we wear. We do it with how we understand mission, how we understand community. We create all these metrics that we then, because this metric now carries so much weight in discerning who's in and who's out, then we create these cultish institutions whose role isn't to seek the growth of the kingdom, but whose role is to mechanically guide people towards these particular metrics to impose this sort of change on you where it's like, no, if you're struggling with this particular type of sin and it looks this way, then you're definitely out. Therefore, address the appearance of that sin, then you can come back in. And so it has nothing anymore to do with a sort of heart change. It has nothing to do with this organic transformation that we see in the gospel. You aren't taken out your heart of stone and given a heart of flesh that we might see love, joy, peace, patience manifest in your life. Instead, since we've determined the metric, now we're just mechanically trying to force people into this mold of what we think being a Christian should look like. That's the harm to the wheat. Because in making that distinction, according to this metric, we're going to get it wrong. And people that should have been wheat are going to get torn up. J.C. Ryle uh, an old preacher, says this. He said, those who care not what happens to the wheat, provided they can root up the tares, show little of the mind of Christ. And after all, there is deep truth in the charitable saying of Augustine. Those who are tares today may be wheat tomorrow. We can't tell now 
but one day it will be revealed. There is a reality to this distinction. It just simply isn't ours to make. So first thing was that they are very similar in the kingdom as it presents itself now. The second thing is that it's for the sake of the wheat that we don't try and make the separation now. And the third thing uh, that we see that is a benefit of knowing this is that it sets a present expectation of the kingdom that allows us to move in the presence of constant adversity and opposition. You see, when we know that the kingdom, that the sons of the kingdom are always growing amongst the sons of the evil one, then we'll no longer think, you know, this problem would just be solved if we could just get rid of them. Because that's not going to happen. That's not where the kingdom grows. The kingdom is always moving out into the world amidst a ton of adversity and people that are, that are out, outwardly oppositional to the way of thinking. And that's also true within the church. If you're in the midst of like a church shopping moment and, and you're, you just left your last one because you realize, man, there are some people in there that are just definitely sons of the evil one. There are people in there that are definitely not in the kingdom. They aren't seeking the kingdom. Yeah, just how Jesus described it. So stick around. And if you, if you just started here, just wait. <laughs> we bounce around because we don't have this real expectation that Jesus is providing us. That the kingdom grows amidst adversity. The kingdom grows in the presence of the impurity, whatever, of the world. And so what that does is it prevents a lot of the intramural sports that churches play with each other. Where we're arguing about these certain metrics that we're using to make these delineations. And instead, it causes us to focus on the growth of the field. So what I want this to show us is that it forces us into the messiness of the world. We're forced into the messiness of the world. That should provide us with an incredible amount of endurance and an incredible amount of patience with each other. All right, so that's our present expectation for the kingdom. Finally, I want to move into our future hope. So Matthew 13, 41 to 43, says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Finally, our future hope and our future fear perhaps, is that there will be a final judgment. 
this delineation will be completely made and made completely known. The weeds that grow will be gathered up and called weeds and thrown outside of the kingdom. And that place is described where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a tough phrase to pin down, but it likely refers to this incredible pain of regret. And that makes perfect sense. Because what they'll see is that the kingdom was in their midst the whole time. It was growing right next to them. Growing amongst them. This incredible pain of regret. You see, as similar as these things are now, as similar as the appearance of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one is now, so too will it be different. One, a weeping and gnashing of teeth. How did I not see it? It was in my midst this whole time. It was present. Any time I saw a selfless act, any hope of love that I saw in the world, any time there was hope in the world, I was in the midst of it. And I never saw it. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. And then the sons of the kingdom who don't look much different than the sons of the evil one now, who are struggling amidst an adversity, who are trying to cling to their faith sometimes when it feels like they have nothing left to hold on to. They'll shine like the sun. See, the distinction isn't for us to make now. Because what we'll end up doing is we'll go to someone and say, you're certainly not in the kingdom. And yet the intention of that person is that one day they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. This is a... uh, You know how, like, Dave Chappelle doesn't let people bring cell phones into his stand-up acts because he, like, wants this to be just for us? Sometimes I wish that for the podcast because I'm, like, talking about my in-laws today. (laughs) But I didn't understand this parable. I really don't... I was struggling with it all week. This was was kind of a difficult sermon to write. And I, I don't think I understood it until last night when... Uh, my wife was discussing an interaction that she had with one of her coworkers who came to her, and I don't have permission to say this, so let's keep this between us, <laughs> who came to her and said, you know, your influence in my wife and I's life has brought us back to Jesus. And I know that coworker And I I thought of them as weeds. Because I have a metric in my mind.
It's not ours to sort out now. Because we can't tell the difference. And so there's people in your life that you might have written off as this is, this is your, these are obviously sons of the evil one. Remember this parable. Remember your own ignorance. One day they might shine like the sun. So be patient. Endure. Continue praying. Continue interceding. Continue having those conversations. Because in many ways, we're, we're told what we need to be told for the kingdom to grow. And God doesn't tell us who's in, who's out now. He says, that's my job. We can trust him with that. So with that, let's take some questions. Hypothetical. All right, I won't take it too seriously. I struggle with certain sins in which my non-Christian friends strongly encourage me to indulge. Is there any wisdom in distancing myself from them for a short while so I don't damage my witness? Um, you know, it, John the Baptist's disciples came and they were fasting. Uh, and then Jesus was with his disciples and they were, they were always with non non-Christians, you know, <laughs> I, I know it's odd, maybe odd to use the word non-Christian at, in that context, but, uh, uh, but they're hanging out with people who were in no way a part of the religious community. And people said, you know, Jesus, you and your disciples, you just look like drunkards. There is a way there must be a way for us to be with our non-Christian friends, for the kingdom to grow amongst what isn't the kingdom, and the kingdom be okay. Now, is there any wisdom in, for a short time, like, listen, whenever we're together, this, I just need to know my limits. Yes, there's wisdom in that. I think that exists for a short time. But in that process, I think the wisdom that you need to hope to gain is that the problem isn't your friends. And the problem isn't their habits. But there's a problem in you that needs to be sorted out. And if that takes time, you can provide that with time. But the kingdom's always going to be growing in the midst of adversity, in the midst of values and things that aren't that kingdom. And so the danger is, when we, when we make other metrics like this, like I can't hang out with them because they do this sort of thing, what's going to happen is that sin that's, in, that's buried deep inside your heart, that's worshiping something other than God, your heart isn't going to change. You're just going to transform the way that your sin expresses itself. And so you're going to be out, like, not partying with your friends 
because you're indulging your own religious pride. That's not a transformed heart. My point isn't that it doesn't take wisdom to sort through the practicalities of how we're going to be fighting the sin in our lives. But it is to say, don't deceive yourself into thinking that your heart has been transformed when the reality is you've just switched the metric that you're using to determine whether or not you're in the kingdom and someone else is out of it. Okay, next question. There's probably more to say on damaging witness, but we'll continue on. Can you address the place for foreign missions in light of the doctrine of predestination? Yeah, there's saved people in those countries. We need to go get them. We don't do missions. What, what predestination does is it unites our motivation for missions with God's motivation for missions. And God's motivation for missions is that he would be glorified. And so he made this ultimate sacrifice to go get them, to come and save people at this incredible cost. And then he says, you know, I've determined the means as well, and part of that means that I'm going to use to rescue them is I'm going to make a church that shares in my heart in going to get those whom I've rescued. And so that's our motivation. It's the same as God's motivation. It's not, perhaps this will hinge on my salesmanship. It's not, well, at least I'll go because I know their salvation ultimately depends on me. It's no, I'll go with a certainty because I know that God has rescued people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. And I can't tell the difference. And so I'm going to go and be the aroma of Christ there. And for some, it's going to be an aroma from death to death. And to others, it's going to be an aroma from life to life. And how that smell reads to the person, that's not mine but I've got to go be that smell there. What predestination does, understanding that, it becomes the motivation for missions. Because there's saved people in there and we need to go get them. All right, next question. So I get the idea that the parable is teaching us we can't tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians. But how do I square this principle with other verses that admonish us to make a distinction for sin within the church? Great question. Uh, great question. So, yeah, Matthew 18 comes to mind. Where we're given this instruction of uh, when someone is sinning in your church, then go to them privately and say, listen, here's this sin, this needs to stop. And then if they still don't stop, then uh, go to them with uh, uh, someone else and explain. And then finally, bring them before the church. And if they still refuse to repent, then you put them outside of the church. So there's a couple distinctions that we need to make. Is the church the kingdom? No. They're not the same thing. 
The church is an established body that, that it depends in many ways on decisions that people are making. And so we're provided with this governance structure in order to maintain these things in ways that are often flawed because it's run by people like us. And then you consider the method and it actually aligns perfectly with this sort of humility that's being called on by this parable. Because you don't just get to go and say, here's the sin. You have to go and, and then you talk to them and you explain it. And that provides you an opportunity to learn. And then if, there's still, if you're still not convinced, then you have to get more people involved because you don't know. And if that doesn't happen, then you have to get everyone involved. You see, there's still this principle of the humility built into that necessary human process for the sake of the church. Because this doesn't mean that there is no such thing as outright denial. But we see Paul operate in, the, in that same way, where he says he, he's turned people over to Satan. But the reason that he does that is, is so that they might be changed and come back. He's not saying, I'm certain that this person is a weed. He's saying the necessary response to this deliberate sin now is to simply agree with their own assessment. When they say, I'm going to continue deliberately sinning and not treating Jesus as Lord, then we say, then don't gather with the people who are saying we are treating Jesus as Lord. Now let's both be honest about where we see ourselves to be. And the process that's laid out in Matthew 13, I think, aligns with that. Uh, okay, let's see if uh, that should be it. Yeah, that's it. Really good questions. Really good questions. Let's. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, and then we'll take communion. In speaking about these delineations uh, and our present experience of them, communion provides this opportunity to just get really honest with ourselves about what the distinctions we're making are between the kingdom and not the kingdom. See, are these biblical distinctions? Are there people that I've written off that God is calling me to be patient with? Let's pray. Holy Father, You call us to this complicated place where you reveal to us these realities of our condition, that our sin is so terrible that we ought not to have any hope of participation in your kingdom. And yet, in the grace that you've shown to us in Christ, we see that you have chosen to rescue some. Father, that is, that is a, a weight that's 
uh, almost too much to bear. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that trust you with that judgment and hearts that seek the growth of your kingdom with endurance and patience in the midst of a present promised adversity. Father, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.